Simon Sinek is a world-renowned inspirational speaker. He's a best-selling author and one of the foremost experts on leadership. We have an amazing conversation. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. 8sleep.com slash amp for $150 at checkout. By Vivo. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash amp for a 100-day free trial of their shoes and 20% discount. And as always, buy Onnit. Onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything always. So during this conversation, we not only talk about leadership and talk about business, but we also get into the intricacy of the finite game versus the infinite game. And this is something that I've really been meditating on a lot myself. Because the finite game, it has this defined set of rules. It has the winners and the losers and the stat sheets. Well, eventually, that runs out of meaning. And you have to look at the infinite game, the infinite game that cares about extending the play of the game for as long as possible for everybody involved. And this is a great podcast, especially for me, what I'm experiencing right now, and I can't wait to share it with you. This episode is brought to you first by 8sleep. So you've heard me talk about mattresses, and there's a lot of good ones, but do not go to the mattress store. Like, this is not the way to go. And when you're talking about mattress tech, all right, first of all, you want none of the toxic chemicals and all the bullshit that's in all the other mattresses. That's something that 8sleep has covered. But then you really want to level up. You, like, really want to push the game to that baller status where you're going to sleep like a wee babe out in the grassy fields in the arms of mother nature well in mother nature's arms it gets cold at night and we're used to that you know we think we want all the warm blankets and a hot thing but then we get hot and we throw off our covers that's not the way the way is the loving but slightly chilly embrace of those grassy fields at the arms of mother nature well eight sleeps got you covered they got water cooling system and a water heating system in case those chilly arms of mother nature turn like montana or like edmonton or some shit and get real cold and then you're going to want to warm up and then oh wow this is amazing and you're going to be like at a hot spring right in your mattress and that's awesome check it out the temperatures go down to 55 degrees or up to 110 degrees it's a great experience and you're in full control the results are that eight sleep users have fallen asleep up to 30 percent faster they've reduced sleep interruptions by up to 40 percent, and they just get a more restful sleep so this is the way to go if you want to bring your mattress game to the pinnacle go to eightsleepcom slash amp that's e-i-g-h-t sleep.com slash amp and check out the pod pro and save 150 dollars at checkout using promo code amp again the mattress is named the pod pro you save 150 dollars at checkout using the promo code amp at eightsleep.com Next up, we have Vivo Barefoot Shoes. Now, these are the shoes that I'm wearing all the time. Right now, I'm packing. I'm going on a trip to Colorado, and then I'm going over to Sedona. And guess what? I don't even think about what shoes I'm going to be wearing as I'm going to the airports and getting on the plane because I'm going to wear my Vivo Barefoot Shoes because that's the only fucking shoes I ever wear when I travel because they look cool. They're like these boot type of things that I got, and they have these other cool shoes that slip on. I wear socks when I'm traveling, though, but sometimes I don't when I'm just cruising around because the soles of the shoes are awesome and they don't stink but that's not why i like them because they look cool and the toe box is not going to smash my toes together into like a point into like a a witch's hat where it's all cramming towards a cone like i'm trying to put my feet through a funnel and like squeeze them down and then no that's not the way to go 
you want to spread your toes just like you're in a yoga studio spread your toes on the mat let that fascia in between your toes just start to stretch out and breathe otherwise you're going to start to have foot problems and the foot problems are going to go to ankle problems and the ankle problems connected to the knee bone and the knee bones connected to the hip bone and the hip bones connected to your whole fucking body so this is the problem when you're actually not taking care of the small things like your toes and the toe box and vivo barefoot's got you covered there's plenty of room it's like a spacious apartment get in there your feet can cruise around they can make some tea they can have dinner they can invite their friends over (laughs) all right you get the idea but i love these shoes and i'm telling you you're gonna love them too so get a 100 day free trial 20 percent off go to vivobarefoot.com slash amp once again 100 day free trial 20 percent discount go to vivobarefoot.com dot com slash amp and that's v-i-v-o and last up we have on it and one of the things i want to talk about today about on it is how rad it is when i meet somebody and they take a look at what the on it training implements are like the steel mace or the steel clubs and they're like hey i'd really like to try that can you guys send me one of these out and i'm like sure homie i will send you one of these because i know they're about to begin a journey that i went on 10 years ago And this journey was you receive the tools, you get some information on how to use them, and you start the practice of getting better and getting stronger at the same time. So you're working on your skills, you're working on these implements, and you're improving, which is always fun. And you're also getting all of the fitness benefits that you're looking for and keeping your body healthy because of the rotational patterns that these tools use. All of the Onnit fitness equipment are like that. Everything that we offer is something that you can use to better your body and also improve your skill at it. And it's just badass. It's badass to swing a mace around. And it feels amazing. It's great for your body. So definitely check out all the fitness equipment at Onnit. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and you'll get 10% off all this fitness equipment that I talked about. There's plenty of information from the Onnit 6 workouts to the Onnit in 30 workouts to just information that we have on the Onnit Academy. So check it all out. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything always. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Simon Sinek. Simon, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So this has been a really interesting time that we've lived through in this past year in particular. And you're someone who talks about the virtues of leadership and what the epitome of a good leader is. And it seems to a lot of us, without getting political and trying to say which one is better or worse, it seems that there's been a vacuum of good leadership at a time where we could really use some strong leadership. So have you just been looking, what have you been thinking as you've been looking out into the world and seeing how you know politicians and people have been handling people in leadership positions have been handling these crises that have been thrown at us what's interesting is i think we've had a vacuum leadership for long before the past two presidencies um uh you know i think uh we've had a steady drumbeat in decline of leadership for quite some time now and we Mm -hmm. see it in politics and business and other places you know where those those sort of those huge sort of larger than life leaders that we all want to follow and go wherever they go. There seems to be a lot fewer of them in the world these days, you know? Um, So I I think we're living in a time right now where it's just, uh, uh, I I think we're all dealing with the fact that there just, there there aren't a lot of leaders. 
Um, so there, the funny thing is, is there's a movement now to talk about leadership. Like the fact that I have a career is embarrassing, right? <laughs> like I talk about trust and cooperation. There should be no demand for my work whatsoever. Um, but there is, in other words, people can feel it. They can feel that sure. when they go to work or when they cast a vote, they, they feel like they're voting for the lesser of two evils, or they feel like they're going to work for now. You know, I'll have this job, I'll work for a few years, and if something better comes along, I'll go it. I'll, I'll do it, as opposed to giving 20 years or 30 years of my life to one company. Like, that thought doesn't even exist anymore. You know, there's mm -hmm. an entire generation that's growing up that has no idea what we're talking about when we talk about getting the gold watch. Like, they just don't know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, right. Uh, and, and I think, like I said, that, that didn't happen overnight. It's been a, it's been a steady drumbeat. What is it about this? Cause this might say that there's a systemic problem with something in which leaders who do not have the you know requisite skills to be leaders and, or the natural aptitudes are becoming leaders. So is this a systemic issue that's actually rewarding poor leadership practice, or is it just people there just is a short supply of leaders? What's the, what's the issue here? Yeah, I mean, look, leadership is a skill. It's a learnable, practicable, teachable skill. And so if we have a lack of leaders, then you're right. Who's teaching the skills? There's a huge difference between being a leader and having a leadership position. Lots of people occupy leadership positions, but they're not leaders. And if you think about it, we don't really teach it. We, we don't teach it in our business schools. We teach management. We teach people to view each other as line items, as, as an expense. Um, but where are the actual leadership curricula? Like, they're not there. Um, when someone joins a company... We give them tons of training how to do their job, right? Whether you're on the sales team, whatever it is, we teach you how to use the computer system. We teach you the product line. We let you shadow more experienced people. Why do we do that? So you'll be good at your job. And if you're really good at your job, we'll promote you. And eventually we'll promote you to a position where you're responsible for the people who do the job you used to do, but we don't teach you how to do that. Mm. And that's why we get managers, not leaders, because... Um, I do know how to do your job better than you. That's what got me promoted. The thing is, that's not your job anymore. You're now responsible for the people who do the job you used to do. And we didn't teach you how to do that. We don't yeah. teach listening skills, how to have an effective confrontation. We don't teach how to give and receive feedback. We don't teach how to have difficult conversations. And we saw it come to head um, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, where a lot of people in leadership positions said nothing to their teams, not because they're bad people. It's because they did not know how to start a difficult conversation with their team. And so they just did nothing. Yeah. Um, these are skill sets that we need to teach. And because they're not being taught in our universities or our business schools, whether they like it or not, it now falls upon the company to teach those skills. So expanding from, I think that makes sense in the, in the companies. It's just that people have been focused on the wrong things. They don't have the right training. And it seems like in politics as well, I mean, instead of profits, it's, it's all about votes, you know, and it's the, the idea is to become the leader and it's not to actually lead well, it's just to get voted into the position and then figure it out from there. But it seems the way our system is so much emphasis is given towards getting to that position and then reinforcing that position, maybe getting reelected and so much of the campaigning and everything, it's reduced the, the office to can we win and then if we win it's this giant boon for the entire machine the entire red or blue organization that's behind it and it's just kind of weird sense of a, a tribal finite game of who's going to win this round of this specific little game we're we're playing rather than 
okay, what about the infinite game of extending life of humanity and our country and the goodness of all for eternity? How about that game? Who cares who fucking wins, right? It just seems like the priorities are, are just off. You, you went in the exact direction uh, that I wanted to go, which is, which is Dr. Kars's work, Dr. James Kars, who in the mid-1980s articulated these two types of games, finite games and infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective, football, baseball. There's always a beginning, middle, and an end. And if there's a winner, necessarily there has to be a loser. And then you have infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players, which means new players can join at any time. The rules are changeable, which means everyone can play however they want. Um, and the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. Um, turns out we're players in infinite games every day of our lives. Um, there's no such thing as winning global politics. There's no such thing as winning education. You can come in first for the finite amount of time you're at school because there's an agreed upon metric system and there's agreed upon uh, standards as to what first looks like, but nobody wins education. Nobody gets declared the winner of careers. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business or winning politics. You can win an election, but you can't win politics. Mm -hmm. um, but if we listen to the language of so many of our leaders, it becomes abundantly clear that they don't know the game they're playing in. They talk about being number one, being the best or beating their competition. Based on what? based upon what agreed upon objectives, metrics, or timeframes. And this is a serious problem because when we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, when we play to win in a game that has no finish line, there are some consistent and predictable outcomes. The big ones include the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. And when you talk about modern day politics, what do we see? Nothing short of decline of trust and decline of cooperation. They're not working together for the greater good. They're working together uh, to see themselves reelected, whether as an individual or as a party, to stay in power. And sometimes that means doing things that will actually hurt us, the general population, the voter, to protect themselves or protect their images. Uh, there is no sacrifice for the greater good. Are you kidding? And the big joke is, um, there's no such thing as winning or losing in those games anyway. Like when, 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 when Circuit City went bankrupt, Best Buy won nothing. All that happened was the game changed. Yeah. And I've talked to some old tiny congressmen and they've said back in the day, um, uh, they used to debate 80% of a bill behind closed doors and come to a, an agreement. The last 20% was for the cameras. And the ambition, the goal was that both parties could go back to their constituents and say, we got what we wanted. In other words, both could win. Yeah. Just like business, it's an infinite game. Two companies selling basically the same product for basically the same price for basically the same quality can both be wildly successful simultaneously. And it's the same in, in politics. Both parties can actually be successful at the same time. But now it's not enough for one party to say, we won what we got what we wanted. We now have um, embraced this finite mindset in this infinite game of politics where it's not enough for us to win, but the other party has to lose, which is mm. a joke because there's no such thing. And all that hurts is, uh, uh, is us. It destroys, as I said, cooperation, innovation, and trust. It seems as if some of this is predicated on the belief that if you did it a different way in business or politics, if you had this infinite mindset, if you really believed in the good of all, you know, my favorite expression that my spiritual mentor taught me, para el bien de todos, for the good of all. This is the boundaries. Similar to the Hippocratic Oath, which you could debate whether that's lived up to as well, you know, do no harm. 
you know, these different principles that are supposed to be these guidelines of what we're offering, somehow there must be a belief that if you actually did that in business or you actually did that in politics, it wouldn't work and you would get trounced by the competition and you would lose. But when you really look at it, the people who follow and ascribe to that, that's not what actually happens in case and practice. But it's just this idea that's in the zeitgeist that's like an infectious idea. Correct. Uh, uh, Yes, yes, and more yes. The irony is, the irony is, is is that the the, the leaders, the politicians, the business leaders who uh, embrace an infinite mindset, the irony is, is they actually outperform uh, their obsessively finite-minded competitors over the long term. Um, look at GE. Jack Welch was the quintessential finite leader who built all kinds of systems and practices that amplified the finite game. He pit his own ploys against each other. You know, he declared, "We have to be one or two in every market, or what's the point?" By the way, one or two based on what? <laughs> based on profit, revenue, market share, number of employees. Based on what time frame? And you can't start number one or two. You have to start somewhere else. So how <laughs> long? Are you, like the whole thing is nonsense, right? And yet. Yeah. Jack Welch was one of the guys who, 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 who perpetuated mass layoffs to balance the books on an annualized basis. He perpetuated and advanced the concept of shareholder supremacy, all of which have done huge damage to our economy over the long term and done da- damage to us, us as employees and individuals. And GE is a shadow of its former self. It's not a great company anymore. It's only built for the short term right. because it wasn't built to, to last. It was built to enrich those who are in power at the time. And we're starting to see these these movements against, you know, people think it's anti-capitalism. Capitalism isn't the problem. The way we do capitalism is the problem. This is not what Adam Smith envisioned when he articulated the wealth of nations, when he wrote down the wealth of nations. This is not the form of capitalism that over the course of 250 some odd years has made America wildly successful as a nation. This is not the capitalism that, that, that we've advanced as a, as, a, as a people. This is a bastardized form of capitalism that has really only come into existence uh, popularized in the 80s and 90s, where we prioritize the few above the many. True capitalism and the true value of the stock market is supposed to be for the good of the whole. And you see this with you know some of the ways that policies have been even enacted. I forget exactly the specifics of the of the scandal. It was the GameStop. In GameStop, you see some of these policies where people get together and they kind of make small investments and they do something that hedge funds do all the fucking time. But all of a sudden, then the powers that be are like, no, 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 no. This finite game is for us. Exactly. This is not for you. You can't and- use our system against us. <laughs> what are you doing? We're supposed to be enriching ourselves. You can't undermine our system for your gain. What are you doing? I know. Yeah. I love it. It's, it's a very interesting time. And you see this. This is pervasive also in our attitude towards the environment. It's like extract as much as possible for the short term and let it all kind of the future will deal with it, whether it's debt policy, whether it's environmental policy, whether it's political policy. It's like this really short sightedness that seems to be so, you know, affecting so many different places that you want to look. We, we did it to ourselves. I hate to say it. You know, we, we overemphasized this, this rugged individualism ideal in the United States you know, the Marlboro man, you know, this lone strong man roaming across, you know, it's just, we over, we overdid it. We over just to, just to pause one second there. There's this one thing that irritates me more than anything. And it's this statue that you see fucking everywhere. And it's this guy who's actually carving himself 
out of a out of like a block of brass or something like that and it's the self-made man yeah. just one man with yeah. a hammer and a chisel right and that's all right. you need because because anyone who's ever had any kind of success individually personally you know uh career-wise relationship-wise it was only you you had no help <laughs> no one believed in you nobody opened a door for you nobody was there for you to you know express doubt and support you when you know when when you when you thought you couldn't do it nobody nobody invested in you no it was all you with no help from anybody else whatsoever exactly so you hit the nail on the head you hit the the, the chisel with the hammer um <laughs> yeah uh which is we've overdone it we've overemphasized this rugged individualism and it's and it's backfired on a number of levels one we've put massive pressure on a young generation that they have to have everything figured out by themselves do it all themselves work hard have a vision uh you know etc 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 know your purpose which is by the way no human being is strong enough to do that alone and we've forgotten the value of service you know, service to our fellow human beings, fellow uh, service to our community. Um, you know, the, the, there's just sort of a, a decline in the sense of taking care of each other. And the great irony is as social animals, we only thrive as individuals when we, when we also take care of each other. I mean, even, even uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is so popular even in the business world. And if you consider Maslow made a massive mistake, right? which is there is an inherent paradox to being human, which is every moment of every day, we are both individuals and members of groups mm -hmm. every day, right? Every day I am confronted with little and big decisions. Do I prioritize myself at the expense of the group or do I prioritize the group at the expense of myself? And there's an entire school of thought that says, no, 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 you have to take care of yourself first so that you'll be healthy to take care of the group. And there's another entire school of thought that says, no, 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 you have to take care of the group so that they can take care of you when you need it. And the answer is you're both right and you're both wrong. It's, it's, it's a paradox. Mm. And this is what Maslow got wrong. You know, at the base of his pyramid is food and shelter. And on the third level up is relationships. I've never heard of anyone dying of suicide because they were hungry. Right. We, we, we die of suicide because we're lonely. In other words, there's something more important than food and shelter. If you only consider us as individuals, Maslow nailed it. He got out 100 percent right. The right. problem is he forgot that we're also members of groups. And that's the problem. He's only half right. And we've so prioritized. And think about what's at the top of Maslow's hierarchy. Self-actualization. How gross is that? That I literally sit on the top of a pyramid. I'm at the highest point, looking down, self-actualized, me. Again, <laughs> what about shared actualization? Yeah. What about that we grow as a community and take care of each other and we take a tremendous joy at the success of others? Any parent knows this, right? The intense joy a parent gets to see their child succeed. Well, that's nothing to do with you, but it is. It's your family. It's your paying it forward. It's all those years of sacrifice that finally bear fruit. Um, and there's something to be said for taking joy in the success of our colleagues and our coworkers and our friends, as opposed to being angry and bitter. And what about me? Like I said, we've over-indexed the, the rugged individualism. I think we can do, uh, do a lot more. And as if I haven't beaten this horse to death, I'll, I'll add one more thing just to reinforce the point more. There's an entire section in the bookshop called self-help. And there is no section in the bookshop called help others. This is a problem. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like wherever, you know, I interview obviously some of the deepest philosophers and brightest minds from so many different fields, 
the thing that everybody points to is community. Everybody, no matter which angle they're looking at it, whether it's you know spiritual, whether it's economic, whether it's philosophical, whether it's mental, whether no matter which angle you're trying to come at this, the solution always ends up whether it's environmental, you know, cataclysmic thinking. It all goes back to community. It all goes back to that state of inner being, as you know, the Buddhists called it, and Charles Eisenstein popularized. But this idea that we are all inexorably connected to each other and ignoring that, first of all, is just wrong. It's just blind. And second of all, it doesn't ultimately work. Maybe for the short term, you can oppress others to gain some small advantage, but then those others that have been oppressed then create the enmity that's ultimately going to tear you down or tear your company, civilization, whatever down. Like It doesn't work ultimately. It's It's a failed proposition. But in the longer we persist in it, the more we're going to recognize it. And maybe that's what we need is the abject failure of this idea of individualism so that we get back to this idea of we have to get back to community. The, the problem is, is that it's an existential crisis. You know, if we continue down this obsessed, obsessively finite path, it becomes existential. You know, um, um, and, and for the cynics out there, you know, the infinite game is not the absence of finite games. Um, it's the context within which those finite games exist. There's nothing wrong with winning if the rules of the game allow for winning, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with metrics and counting. We're, 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 we're uh, you know, our dopamine-driven brains ne- need to count things. We need to f- feel the progress, count the progress. You can't run a marathon without mile markers. It's actually really unnerving right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But to what end is the question I would ask? To what end? You know, you want to make money to what end? You want to get a promotion to what end? So you can retire, you know, they're not going to write um, the last balance in your bank account on your tombstone. You know, nobody wants the title on their last business card on their tombstone. We want to be remembered for the kind of people we were, you know, devoted husband, loving mother. This This is the kind of people we were, and yet we forget about that. And the funny thing is we're so obsessed with the finite. I mean, take, take exercise is a great example of, of, of the analogies we should be using. We overuse sports and war analogies in business, right? Mm-hmm. But health is actually a much better analogy. So you want to be healthy. Great. There's a whole list of things you have to do. You've got to exercise. You've got to eat right. You've got to get sleep. You've got to nurse your personal relationships. The list goes on and on and on. You can't do them all perfectly all the time. Some of that causes a stress, but you got to kind of like try and do as best you can. So pick one of them, exercise, right? There's nothing wrong with having a finite game within that. Just like in business, for example, we can pick an arbitrary number. I want to lose X amount of weight by an arbitrary date. Done. That's exactly what we do in business. That's what called mm-hmm. business planning is. Arbitrary numbers, arbitrary dates, <laughs> right? And so we get to exercising and doing the work and we weigh ourselves every day. And if we have a good day, we feel all great. And if we have a bad day, we feel all down. And if you hit your goal on the right date, on the right time, you feel amazing. This, 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 this feeling of incredible success, except you have to keep exercising for the rest of your life. Like it's not over, right? It's just one of the steps. It's one of the milestones, but you have to keep at it. And what happens if you miss your goal? Nothing, nothing happens right? Uh, in fact, you're way healthier now than you were when you started and you'll probably hit your goal in two or three more months if you just keep at it. And it's the same in business. If you miss an arbitrary number and an arbitrary date, you know what happens? Nothing, nothing happens. 
And the problem is, is we prioritize those that hit the number on the date and we ignore those that are building good teams with good relationships and good product and good service. And we don't reward those people, even though we can see they'll hit their, their numbers in 13 months instead of 12. We can, look at the, we can look at the trend data. And so I think we have to use health as the, as the better analogy when we think about building a business. We want to build strong, long-lasting businesses. We're going to have to do all these practices forever. And the people who succeed us will have to pick up where we left off. And all of the choices we make, the finite choices we make, have to be in service to health right? We can't just win for now. And if I create problems, I'm going to be retired. It's not my problem. It's yours. We right, can't right. do that. And so I think, I think health is a much better analogy than sports or war. I agree. I agree completely. There's, some, there's something else though, is even when we do hit those goals, you know, you put your hands up and said, yes, I hit it. The, I've found, I've hit a lot of fucking goals. I've found that that's usually not even the feeling, you know, and my mother was a pro tennis player and she taught me this early. She's like, look, you win the tournament, you know, and it doesn't matter who I talk, I've talked to a lot of champions. There's that moment of maybe, especially if it was a close contest and it was quick and you didn't know when it was, and then there's that moment, but that doesn't last very long. No. So if we're tilting our whole life for that joy, That's because right. we think that extrinsic target we hit is going to bring us everlasting joy. Sorry, it's not because the moment you hit it, you have a vacuum of purpose Correct. and purpose and the doing of the thing is what actually gets us more excited and more fired up even talking to lance armstrong you know about when he would win all of those you know all of those tour de france's right it wasn't the champagne in the podium it was like that was a short celebration but what he lived for was the training the practice the building up to it the knowing every day he was getting incrementally better at what he was trying to achieve and that's that's the case for all of us these moments that we think are going to ultimately redeem all of our suffering or whatever sacrifices we made and whatever cost we've you know outsourced to different people along the way and whatever we've done and we're going to have this moment it's all going to be fucking worth it it's not you know it's like it's not even going to work the problem is is that win that that intense surge of dopamine that you get when we win is 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 highly addictive and so and because the feeling does go away, you're right. Nobody is celebrating hitting that goal from a year ago. Like the feeling is <laughs> gone, right? Yeah. But the problem is, is that because it feels so good, we, we think that the only way to feel good is to get another hit, get another hit, get another hit, get another hit, which is how addiction works. Right. Um, and so what purpose does is it contextualizes those things. What purpose does, the purpose is the infinite part where I, I can celebrate. There's nothing wrong with the celebration, but I understand there's still a lot of work to be done. You know that this 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 will go forever, and and um, and athletes are fascinating to me, especially when they're they're at the highest levels, whether you're an Olympian or something like that, because they are the most extreme finite players in the world. Very often, you know, mm -hmm. and you look at and this affects individual athletes much more than team team sports. You know, because team sports we had to do it together. But if you look at you know Michael Phelps becomes the most medaled Olympian of all time, and what happens afterwards? depression. You look at Andre Agassi, who becomes the most celebrated tennis player of all time. What happens right after? Depression. And, they, and I've talked to uh, Olympians and the ones that are at the, the elite class, the, 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 the medal contenders, you know, there, there's a lot of struggle there. The ones, I've also talked to Olympians that had no chance of winning medals ever. And they're like way well adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, and you, you talk to these Olympians and they, they, all, they all say the same thing. They wanted to win the Olympics. No, you wanted to win one event in one sport, you know, for, <laughs> for, for, for two minutes, right? right? 
but they all talk about winning the Olympics, which is funny unto itself. And they set up these, these, these lives where every relationship is self-serving. And when they all, you know, they do their interviews, I just wanted to inspire all the little boys and girls, like complete bullshit, right? <laughs> that was the lucky strike extra. There's n- not a single one of them when they were 15 years old or 18 years old and looking at their vision boards, nowhere were there inspired little boys and girls on their vision board. It was them standing on a podium, podium with a gold medal, which is why they're so depressed when they get silver, right? Because they weren't inspiring anybody. It, like I said, it was just the lucky strike extra. And they may have discovered right. that after the fact. And it's this, and there's this obsession with winning for self-gain that when they're done with the sport, the, the thing that they have defined their value by, they look back and they realize that all of their relationships were transactional and to serve them. And companies look at these Olympians and say, we're going to hire that person because we want their work ethic, except they're not going to give you that work ethic because they're not driven by the same thing. I think that's so fascinating. And I think that it's fun to celebrate athletes and it's fun to celebrate the win. But, but there was, I can't remember the exact statistics. You might know them, but they interviewed Olympians and, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it'll make the point. And they said, if you could be guaranteed um, a medal, but you would have to retire immediately, would you do it? Right. And I think something like 80% said yes. And the next question is, if you could be guaranteed goal, but you're going to die, you know, 10 years earlier than, or, you know, than you would have, would you do it? And something like 60% said yes. <laughs> you know, it's just like mind blowing. Yeah. Um, but I'm fascinating. I'm fascinated by the people who are obsessed with winning in a game that cannot be won. It seems like this goes to a, a very existential question about the self itself, because these identity constructs, which win all of the accolades, and you know, James Carst talks about this, of course, in his book as well. The identity self that wins all of these accolades and that worries about the validations and the medals and the scorecards and the things, this this part, you know, believes that it lives on forever. In some ways it does. Like whoever won Wimbledon, whoever, you know, won the Grand Prix of whatever sport, you know, it's it's noted. If you win the Stanley Cup, your fucking name's engraved on that giant cup until they have to get a new cup because that one doesn't have enough room. But whatever, like that part of you lives on, but it's not real. It's not just real. a, it's a construct that we've created. Correct. So we're, it's almost like we're chasing a fake immortality, Correct. the immortality and, of the ego. And the next generation doesn't know who you are. <laughs> yeah, the only people who know who care. you are last a few years. So the people who remember seeing your commercial after the Euro Olympics, and then you just wait a couple of cycles and no one knows who you are. All the Olympians that you and I know their names because we grew up with their Olympics, kids now, they're not immortal. Yeah. They're not immortal. Um, and that's sort of funny, you know? Um, and the idea that you're going to care when you transition from this life right. into your state of pure consciousness, right. that you're going to look back and like think about all of the people reading about you in some book somewhere that you care. Like that's not the, that's not actually the real thing that we are happens. and that exists. It, it even gets funnier than that, right? Because there's this belief that by winning the, the event, you're the best in the world, right? And so true, I was watching one of the ice skating competitions during the Olympics. And I think, you know, ice skating is one of those sports that we love during the Olympics and never watch any other time. <laughs> um, sure. um, but I was watching one of the ice skating competitions and the person who won the gold medal fell during their routine. But the people who won silver and bronze fell twice, right? So the best in the world fell. Like you don't, in other words, you're not actually the best in the world. You're just better than everybody else was that day. 
Yeah. And you can say that about every competition, right? Sure. You, you weren't the best. You were just better than the other team or the other players that day. And I find that really funny because there's this belief that, that we hold a position that actually is relative. It's actually a relative position. And I think the only thing that's absolute is the infinite game because it's always going, it's bigger than us. And, uh, uh, and the game survives us in sports. Mm -hmm. We survive the game. You know, the, uh, the Dodgers played the Mets, that game is over. We can actually go rewatch it on TV if we want, but the game is over. The teams live on. We're in the infinite game. The players die. Circuit city doesn't exist anymore. You know, uh, our ancestors are long gone, but the infinite game persists. And I just love that dichotomy. Right. And I think part of the challenge is, is that there's the, the vacuum of the understanding of the infinite self in the absence of the understanding Correct. of the infinite self, which is connected to all beings and all things at all times. The other thing gets elevated to this heightened position. And that's what we believe. So it goes back to the very fundamental belief about the self, right. which is that we are our identity, our name, our business card, our accomplishments, period. Right. And this is an old, old belief. I was even in a I forget the name of the, the, I think it was the Recoleta Cemetery in, in Argentina. And everybody, all of these generals had all of these statues of all of their medals and everything that was listed was, and as you slayed this many people at this one spot and conquered and dominated this, and they're so proud. And then they had these images of all the angels celebrating all the people that they slayed. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> like the angels are going to celebrate your medals and your slain you know, you're slain enemies, right. you know, it's this, this idea that in, even yeah. in that idea that there was a soul, because it was obviously, you know, Christian, and this is not a, not a knock on Christianity. It's just part of the way that even in the religious context, which is talking about the soul, there's right. an, there's a finite game. You either go to heaven, you go to hell, the angels celebrate you or they don't. And we're, we're forgetting this, this other more Eastern philosophy of the, right. the infinite self, which survives all of these things and, and right. doesn't give a shit. Right. All that cares love, about we, how much we, love we, you share. We celebrate how many enemies you slayed um, in your non-existent or diminished empire today. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, um, the I think it's worth underscoring what you said a moment ago, which is our our, our individual selves. We are finite. Um, you know, we're born, we die. There's a beginning, middle, and end, and that's it. Um, and where we are infinite is is how we touch the lives of others. It's our progeny, it's our friends, it's our colleagues, it's our coworkers, it's our bosses, it's, our, uh, it's those who work with us and for us. You know, the impact that we can have in their lives, the values that we pass on, um, how we raise them up um, and celebrate them, that's what lives on beyond us. Yeah. And, and the impact that we have, the infinite life that we live, we can only live through others. And it's not the medals that we won. And it's not the, it's not the, the scores that we achieved. But rather, it's it's how we how we inspired um, uh, following generations to continue to carry the torch that we may have lit or just carried ourselves that was given to us. That's that's what it means to live an infinite life. That it lives on through others, and it's this this beautiful this. And again, it goes back to paradox. It's this beautiful. The hardship of ship of life is this balancing act of sort of advancing myself, my ego, my ambition, which is okay, but it has to be in service to something greater than myself because that's that's where I truly live an infinite life. You can look at someone like Marcus Aurelius for a great example of this because he slayed a lot of Gauls and he 
expanded the empire and did a lot of these things that's what not what people know marcus aurelius for maybe you watched a movie or you kind of got into some of the history but what lives on is his stoic philosophy the quotes that he shared about life the quotes that he offered that lives these ideas that were Mm -hmm. infinite you know not his finite accomplishments same with the samurai you know like the bushido that code of the samurai that's what lives on not the individual accomplishments and i think we get this kind of twisted that 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 the extrinsic accomplishments are what's really going to matter no it's going to be the ideas the why behind it why did you do that what was the way that in which you did that and how can that be translated to future generations forever what is the philosophy what is the meaning behind what you did not what you did at all and the great the great coaches the winning most coaches of of every sport john wooden and the like none of them were obsessed with winning they're obsessed with taking care of their teams and teaching their players to take care of each other and support each other. And in so doing, became the winning most coaches, which I find, you know, sort of this beautiful twist of uh, this beautiful irony um, that the infinite game, that when you embrace the infinite mindset, it actually does lead to finite success. And I, and I think the reason, if this makes so much sense, and here we are talking about it, and it's so logical where everyone's nodding, it begs the question, then why don't people do it? And I think this goes back to the leadership vacuum, vacuum that, we, that we live in today, which is to, to, to live a life with an infinite mindset. The problem is, is those accomplishments are not predictable in time. And we live in a world where we really not only want things, but need things. Our whole incentive structures in our companies, um, the, the election cycles, everything is, is set up that you have to show success by this date, by this time. Um, and, and the infinite game just doesn't work that way which is, it's, it's like riding a bicycle. It's like every single kid can learn how to ride a bicycle. It doesn't matter anything. You can learn how to ride a bike. There's a process. You have to start with training wheels. You take one wheel off. You take two wheels off. One of your parents is holding the back of the seat. At some point, they'll let go. You'll look down. You'll freak out. You'll fall over. You know. And if you just go through this process, you, 100% of kids will learn how to ride a bicycle. The problem is, I don't know how long it takes. Right. Some kids will learn quickly. Some kids will, will learn slowly. You know, every kid learns how to walk. Every kid learns how to talk. Parents compare. How long did yours take to walk? Mine's a little slow, right? It's okay. There's a process and 100% of the time it works. And the fear we have is to trust the process. And so we, we hijack the process for the short-term game while doing long-term damage to ourselves or organizations rather than simply trusting the process, working out, all of these things. If you trust the process, 100% of people will get into shape if you simply work out for 20 minutes a day, 100%. But I just don't know when. And we know this inherently in the infinite games that we're comfortable with, like riding a bicycle, like learning to walk or talk, like getting into shape. But for some reason in other infinite games, we, we, we can't do it. And like I said before, the incentive structures we have actually encourage us to ignore the principles of the infinite game and embrace, overly embrace the rugged individualism and, and, and the, 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 the finite mindedness. And, and, the, the, and the sad part is all, all we do is damage to ourselves and the people we love. That's it. You hinted at one of the deep challenges that we all face in this mindset and it's comparison. Yeah. You know, as soon as you start comparing, 
to and and this is a, this is a real challenge especially in our social media era cuz you know think about the the natural native human being that was evolved and our minds evolved we had a tribe of roughly 150 people if you believe in Dunbar's number yep. and we compared ourselves relative to that tribe and we certainly didn't want to be the very last because then you know if resources were tight and we weren't that helpful to the tribe and we weren't of service well we may not actually be a part of that tribe. We may just may not get the resources. And it, there is this idea that we at least want to compare ourselves to this group and contribute in a way that we're part of this. Well, on social media, we don't follow 150 of the normal people. We follow 150 of the most exceptional people in the whole world. And it's really easy to start comparing ourselves to all of these people who, as you've mentioned in your speeches before, they're not even telling the truth, first of all. They're right. just projecting the very best of the very best people right. that we're getting. And if we fall into this trap of comparison, then that self-rejection and that critical nature of like, oh, I'm blowing it. I mean, I was a victim of that. I was at, I was 25 years old. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I had this fledgling marketing company with one client. And I was like, fucking alexander the great conquered the world at 25 what the fuck am i doing you know all these you know tech tech you wizards are creating massive companies right <laughs> <laughs> you know like th that was the that was the pathology my pathology right. of comparison was so deep right you know and if i would have just known like look man it's going to take till you're 30 in your 30s and then when you're 40 you're going to have this you know seminal moment of you know where you've reached the the real pinnacle of everything yeah. of being able to share the ideas that you have to the whole world in the in the most magnificent way i didn't i didn't have that and and it's part of the these ideas are just not as pervasive enough and we can get locked yeah. in these traps of comparison we do i mean what did teddy roosevelt say comparison to the th is the thief of joy you know mm. i mean there's always someone richer than you smarter than you better looking than you their vacation is better their the you know everything about their life you will find something better every single time. Um, and, you know, I, I think this is, you know, turning off social media, you know, with that constant, that constant comparison, I, I think what it does is it forces us to be grateful with what we've got. Um, yeah. And, and this idea of gratitude, you know, I think we've forgotten this concept of gratitude. You know, one of the things that kind of like, it, it's like a pet peeve of mine is anybody who's achieved anything, or even if they didn't achieve it, maybe they were just born into it. You know, they keep saying how lucky they are. You know, I'm look, I'm just really lucky, you know, I'm, I'm like, luck is like, there's no, there's no, I, the, the term I think is gratitude, which is, mm -hmm. you know, for somebody to say, look, you know, I, I my parents were wealthy. I, I, I was just really lucky. Well, why don't you say you were grateful, you know, because now you can do something with that, you know, yeah. or I've had great success and I'm just really lucky. No, just be grateful. And I think to be, to be grateful versus lucky when you, you know, when you win the lottery, you're lucky, you're lucky. Um, um, you had, you had nothing to do with that. I think gratitude says that I, I, I appreciate this and I'm aware of it. Mm. And I, and I, and I, and I can take, um, there's a humility to gratitude, I think more than there is to luck. Um, there, well, and I don't false, think we express gratitude humility. enough. I agree. And there's a false humility to luck as yeah. well. This idea of like, I'm just going to say I'm lucky so that, you know, I don't have to actually. We don't sound actually, like I'm a pompous bastard. Yeah. Right. And actually have to go through the process of gratitude because if you're grateful, that that compels a sense of reciprocity. Like you yeah. feel that gratitude, you're going to naturally want to give back. Right. You know, you're going to feel that where if you're just lucky, then, oh, well, you know, them's the breaks. You know, I got this. You didn't. It's just luck. It's out of my hands and I don't have to be grateful. So I don't have any responsibility to give anything back to the world.
And I think, I think it goes even beyond that, which is when we're lucky, it doesn't inspire us to want to be generous, right? Right. I won it. I just got lucky. You know, <laughs> when you say I'm grateful, like I think the more gratitude we have in our lives, um, the more generous we become. And the more generous we become, the more grateful we become in this virtuous cycle. So um, I'll give you a great example. Like um, uh, when somebody does something nice for you, right? Um, it actually makes you want to be more generous to someone else, right? And when, 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 if you do something nice to somebody else, when they say, oh my God, thank you, thank you, it actually inspires you to want to be more generous. But if they say nothing, you're like, well, screw you then, do it yourself, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's kind yeah. of this weird relationship between generosity and gratitude, just they, they go together. And the more gratitude we express, the more generous we become, the more generous we become, the more, the more gratitude we feel. And it goes back to this point that sort of this, this, this pattern that has been woven through our entire conversation, which goes back to community, which is you cannot foster a strong sense of community. You cannot foster a strong sense of infinite life without the, without this, this, the, without the, the, the play of, of, of gratitude and generosity. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about something that's, I think, really interesting topic that you talk about, and it's the importance of a worthy rival. Mm -hmm. And this idea, it seems, you know, paradoxical or contrary to this idea of the infinite game where you want everybody to win, but it is really valuable to mm -hmm. have to have a rival. It is it is this force that it's like two, you know, iron sharpening iron in a way. It's a way mm -hmm. that it's going to bring the best out of both of you. But so talk about the way to have like a toxic form of rivalry and then a healthy form of rivalry. Because I think if you get rid of rivalry altogether, and I know you agree with this, it's not necessarily the ideal state to be in. Yeah. I, by the way, I have no problem with finite games or competitions as long as it is a finite game and it's a competition. Then you just play by the rules and whatever the agreed upon objective is you play for. And we have competitors in finite games. They are other players that we aim to beat with the agreed upon score, metric, whatever it is. But in infinite games, there are no competitors. There's just lots of other players. And if we arbitrarily choose some of them to be uh, players to beat, then we're taking our eyes off everything else. It's like, you know, uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS and Fox, you know, they're constantly comparing their ratings to each other, completely ignorant of the fact that the world is changing around them. Like, you know, yeah. uh, 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 MySpace had no idea that Facebook even existed. You know, big companies aren't taken down by other big companies that they obsess about. You know, they're taken down by little startups that they weren't even paying attention to every single time. And this is the danger. And when you say we won, we beat them again, based on what revenues, market share, uh, profitability, it, like it's all nonsense. But the value of rivalry, because the only true competitor in an infinite game is ourselves. How do, we make, how do I make myself a better version of myself today than I was yesterday? How do I make my organization a better version of itself this month than it was last month, et cetera, et cetera? Except sometimes we're blind. Sometimes we don't have clarity. And one of the values of, uh, uh, of worthy rivalry is the, the, there are other players in the game where their strengths reveal to us our weaknesses. Um, uh, I'll say that again. You can choose an individual or another company. You can choose as many as you like, but somebody else who does what you do, who's better at some or many things than you are. Their strengths reveal to your weaknesses. And when you have your weaknesses revealed to you, then you can work on those things or partner with somebody else so that you can grow. But the idea isn't to beat them. The idea is just to be grateful to them. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to like them, 
but you do have to be grateful because they gave you the greatest gift ever. They gave you clarity and they gave you uh, uh, an insight that you wouldn't have by yourself. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the, the way that you unwind the toxic elements of this rivalry is gratitude for the rival itself and appreciation, even if you have, you know, you really don't like them, as you say, but knowing this whole time, like, wow, I'm grateful that you've showed me all of these things about myself. You've shown me these things that can make me better and watch me go. I'm going to show you some things, you know, that, that you're going to have to reckon with as well. And it's just a way to kind of healthily forge each other. Or not. It does not. In, in, in a finite game, the competitors are mutual, right? You're trying to beat me and I'm trying to beat you, right? Um, in an infinite game, it can be one way. Um, you know, you may reveal to me my weaknesses, but I may not reveal to you any of yours, right? Sure, sure. You get to choose your own worthy rivals. It, it's, this is the great thing about the infinite game is, is it's not a predetermined set of competitors. Um, and, uh, you know, when Amazon went to every single one of the major publishers and said, would you like to invest in our little company? And every single major publisher said, nah, we're good, right? What the major publishers were ignoring was there's this thing called the internet and a company was doing things different to them and you'd have to like them or agree with them, but maybe you should pay attention to them. Maybe you should actually look at the way they were seeing the world. One of my favorite examples was Best Buy, right? Best Buy um, was the 800-pound gorilla. It was the only significant national video rental chain. It, was, it owned everything. Um, and there's this tiny, tiny, tiny little company called Netflix that was experimenting with an entirely new business model called subscription. And for those who can remember, you know, you would Wait, are you talking about Blockbuster or Best Buy? Oh, did I say Best Buy? You did. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I meant Blockbuster. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. Sorry. I meant Blockbuster. Yes. Thank you for catching that. I meant Blockbuster. And um, uh, um, Netflix, for those who remember, the the way it started was you would subscribe and they would send you DVDs in the mail and you could keep them for as long as you wanted. Mm -hmm. And everybody knew streaming was a thing, but the technology wasn't quite good enough yet, but it was coming down the pike. We could see it. And and Netflix was was preparing for it. You could see it. And they approached uh, Blockbuster and said, do you want to buy us or partner with us? And Blockbuster scoffed. Um, but the interesting thing was the CEO of Blockbuster at the time, he actually went to the board and said, I think we need to experiment with a different business model. I think we actually need to experiment with subscription. And the board wouldn't let him change the business model because the company made 12% of its revenues from late fees, which became Ugh. completely irrelevant Ugh. when streaming happened right? Because they couldn't let go of the way they made their money in the past. And they couldn't see that the world was changing around them. And this is key to an infinite mindset. We accept that politics, culture, and technology change around us. We accept that that we actually live in uncertainty and surprise. And infinite players, infinite-minded players are very comfortable with surprise and uncertainty because we find opportunity in the unknown. Finite players fear change, surprise, or uncertainty because, uh, well, it's just heck of an unnerving and all the thinking has already been done. I can't undo all the thinking and business model I've already done where the infinite player goes, world's different, time to change. Um, And I think think that worthy rivalry does that. It helps us actually stay um, much more aware of changing trends, even if we're afraid of them. Mm. When you're talking about leadership, I think some people have an idea that some people are leaders, other people are not. Yeah. And it feels like something that 
should be recognized that all of us are leaders in some way, in our own way. So when you're talking about leadership, this isn't you talking to a select few who are born with these particular qualities or gifted with these particular positions of leadership, but leadership is an intrinsic quality of human existence. There's always going to be a time where we're a leader. Correct. I I, I like to think of uh, a leadership like parenting, right? Like it's a capacity. Like every person has the capacity to be a parent. Not everybody should be a parent and not everybody wants to be a parent, <laughs> but yeah, you can, if you like, you know, and sometimes if you've, and if you didn't like, then you learn quick, right? And leadership's the same. Some, some find themselves in a leadership position and now you got to learn to be a leader. And it's a skill uh, like any other skill. And we have to be crystal clear what leadership is. Leadership is not rank or authority. Um, I know many people who sit at the highest levels of organizations who are not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we don't trust them and we don't follow them. And yet we know many people who have no formal rank or authority, but they've made the choice to look after the person to the left of them, look after the person to the right of them, and we would trust them and follow them anywhere. There's that community thing again. Mm. Um, leadership, very simply, is, is, um, is taking the responsibility for those around us. Leadership is very simply the, the responsibility to see those around us rise. Whether you're in an organization, whether you're a parent, you take the responsibility to see another human being be the best version of themselves and rise. And, and that's what leadership is. And it is a skill. Um, so yeah, every single one of us has the capacity to be the leader we wish we had, whether we have formal rank or not. Be the leader we wish we had. I've heard you say that a few times before, but it's it's really powerful. And and also, you know, an example of a you know a good friend of mine is uh, his name Steve Weatherford, and he was a punter for the Giants, and he was played on some other teams. But he was voted as captain of the team. Now you don't see that often from a punter, right? Like you think, ah, quarterback, obviously, you know. But it just shows that no matter whether you're the punter in your life and in your community or whether you're the quarterback who's naturally right. supposed to be the leader because of the right. position and the way that the dynamics of it, you're calling plays and you're doing that. Leadership is this this choice that we can make. And when we do that, it will be naturally recognized. People Correct. will look to you when any type of shit hits the fan or there's any type of situation. If you stand in that way in accord with those leadership principles, that leadership ethos, you will become a leader it'll just happen naturally it's exactly right i mean and and you all the all the sort of the way leadership actually works is it's the leader who's in service to the people not the other way around you know i've never heard a great leader say prove to me why i should trust you you know it's the other way around the leader has to prove themselves to the people the power always belongs to the people always it's why dictators fear the people right mm. in dictatorships you know we put big walls miles and miles away from the leader's house you know, with, with shoot to kill orders, if you go anywhere near it. Whereas uh, uh, in, in democracies, you know, there's security, but you can walk pretty close to the leader's house. It's kind of amazing. Right. You know? right. um, and it, the people have the power, you know, that's why, that's why dictatorships, they have fake elections and they give the appearance of public support. Well, who cares? It actually matters because the people always have the power. And, and dictators and toxic leaders are very skilled at keeping the people divided because when the people are busy fighting themselves, they're not looking at me, are they? That is, I mean, this is classic Sun Tzu strategies of war. And unfortunately, the way that we're not at war with each other, we certainly shouldn't propose that. But you look at, and again, going circling back to politics, 
it is like war strategy, win at all cost, even, you know, Marquis de Queensberry rules of, you know, engagement. And I think that's a boxing term, but whatever. The idea that there's certain things that you won't even do in war. I mean, that even exists in war, but it seems like the way that we're at now, it's by whatever means necessary, full on three hours of ad hominem attacks during a debate instead of actually talking about the issues. Right. Yeah, go for it. If that's going to work for you, whatever, by whatever fucking means necessary, right. win at all costs. I mean, look at it. Look at our, po our political parties right now actually accuse each other of being un-American, even traitors, right? Like at, at the party level, right? Now, the difference between a Republican and a Democrat is that we have different theories on how to advance the, 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 the Declaration of Independence. We have different theories on how to advance the ideal that is America, the experiment that is America. And we can debate those theories and debate those differences. And by the way, they go in and out of fashion, right? Mm. Sometimes one's more popular and sometimes the other's more popular. And sometimes like the Whigs, they go completely unpopular and they go away altogether. <laughs> um, um, and, and what I find so amazing is that our, our, our competitors, our, our rivals outside of our nation must be laughing at us because we are, we literally are bringing ourselves down. And it's just so upsetting to me that, that while, while there is what we are a, a significant player in, in a global pol political world, we're too busy attacking each other. It's mind blowing to me. It's mind blowing mm -hmm. to me. And this is one of the values of having, um, an existential threat, an external existential threat. And I'm very uncomfortable with this idea, by the way. You know, I like to think that we follow visions and everything for the greater good. But the reality is, is when we face an external existential threat, it actually helps us bring things together. Like, you know, brothers and sisters may hate each other and fight, but if you threaten my brother or sister, you're going to have to go through me, right? And, you know, if you go back to the Cold War, one of the great values of the Soviet Union is we, we fought like cats and dogs, the political parties fought like cats and dogs, the, the, you know, the, the different forces in the military were just as possessive about their budgets. But at the end of the day, we could all agree on one thing, which is that existential threat was greater than everything else we were discussing and we could align ourselves and come together. And I think one of the challenges we face in the world today is we have no uh, perception of an external existential threat. And so we rip ourselves apart. And this is pretty much how every empire went into decline you see this in any type of disaster even a mini disaster right i mean i think even in so i live in austin in austin texas and this is a, a liberal a liberal town in a conservative state and so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of rifts between what people think about each other and and but we had this very strange aberrant snowstorm and everything it was you know February and all of a sudden everything was completely shut down power grids were failing water supply was failing a lot of different things were happening and what we saw universally cars were sliding off the road everybody was helping everybody nobody I mean the elect it was still the heat of this kind of election post-election all of this you know nonsense that was kind of happening and, and all of the divisiveness but at that point when the snow had really dropped what I saw universally was everybody helping everybody. Hey, if yeah. you need water, here yeah. my water's on. I can help you out. Hey, if you've got if you're out of food, like I got some. Oh, I have a car that can handle these roads. If you need, a, everybody started helping each other, and it was because of the snow. And yep. then, of course, things thaw out, and then, of course, it's back to like, oh yeah, fuck those guys over there down the street. You know, they believe exactly a different right. thing than me. It's a it's a very interesting phenomenon, and hopefully, we can learn faster. Than the necessitation for a big exist 
existential threat that which it seems like we're heading towards with the environment like eventually the environment's going to put enough pressure on us that we're going to have to but yeah. at that point it might be too, too late like to learn these principles in advance through inspiration rather than desperation yeah that's the way that we you know really have the best chance yeah and the problem with yeah yes 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 and yes and those existential threats were short term and faced from natural disaster and or terrorism or whatever the thing is you know and you know i lived in new york during september 11th and it was the most magical city afterwards you know we were all helping each other crime plummeted plummeted mm. and disappeared and everybody was nice to each other and saying thank you and holding doors open for each other because we were all afraid together and i remember standing in it thinking ah, i wish this will last but i know it won't mm. and sure enough you know enough time passes and we forget and i'm very uncomfortable with this idea of of needing an existential threat an external uh, uh, existential threat but but it by having something there constantly it reminds us it reminds us and and you know it's a shame that global that climate change hasn't become that thing that shared thing um uh, uh because it could have it could have it could have brought a people together um I, I don't know what would what it would take aliens attacking the earth that would be a strong one that you know, it's, a, but it is one. funny. It is funny if you think about it. What what the where the the climate change debate has become, which is we're actually debating the different things, which I think is kind of hilarious. You know, which is one side thinks it's it's man made and we have to reverse the things that we did, and the other side says these are natural cycles. This is just the way climate works, and just go about your day. And we're debating like. Do you have cancer because you're a smoker or do you have cancer because of your genetics? It's like, mm. you have cancer. What difference does it make how you got it? <laughs> like you have cancer, like treat it. But we're literally debating the cause when it's irrelevant. Right. And, well, and then there's an entire group of thought, well, we shouldn't intervene. Like if there was a meteor that was heading towards the earth, you're damn right. We're going to figure out how to push that meteor out of the, like, we're going to, that's just a natural, it's the way the planets and rocks are moving. We should, of course, we're going to intervene and try and push it out of the way. <laughs> we should always try and intervene and push things out of the way to extend the, 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 the life we have on this planet. Um, I just find the whole debate rather uh, uh, sad because, you know, well-intentioned people who try to inform us of these, of these dangers that were coming you know, could have done such a better job in their messaging. You know, the message matters and who carries the message matters, but we set up the wrong debate. And then to your point, like it'll get to the, it'll get to the point where something becomes so starkly clear that the debate doesn't matter. And then desperation, like, like a storm, um, um, becomes the thing that brings us together. And then it just raises the question, is it going to be too late? When I look at potentially the sacred purpose of humans on the planet, I mean, we live in a cataclysmic planet rocks fall from the sky you know things happen to the weather there's earth shakes, fucking, yeah. earth shakes there's ice ages there's all kinds of crazy volcanoes shit i mean the, the, yeah. volcanoes are like a real thing it's not just yeah. something like from you know the jurassic's age or something that's a real yeah, thing it's not a, like a cute place you go visit magma like when they right. when they blow when the caldera goes you know it's it's a problem it's a real right. problem and if we all recognize okay maybe this is our sacred purpose is to shepherd life for as long as possible with our technological advancements to actually help prevent the next life-killing cataclysm where 
seventy percent of all life is wiped out of the you know off the face of the earth, minus a few of the creatures that can live in the deep oceans, which yeah. by the way now have so much fucking plastic and pollution in it that they're struggling as well, overfishing all the different things. Yeah. Maybe we can actually be these, you know, be the the shepherds, and that's why we've developed in the way we have. Yeah. And so this collective shared purpose of let's stop all the bullshit and then be ready for this next thing that is going to inevitably come so we can extend the infinite game called life on earth. Well, you know, I, I like, think, how about we do that? Well, I think it's really funny. Again, it goes to the failure of communication, which is we keep saying, save the planet. I got news for you. The planet's fine, right? Like <laughs> if we, if like global warming goes unattended to, like whether it's the form of life as we know it with all the animals that we know or an entirely new form of life. Remember the dinosaurs used to be a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, like the, the planet's fine because the conditions for life will exist and new life will emerge. And like, we're not saving the planet. We're saving ourselves. This is, has absolutely, we have to create the conditions that can sustain our lives. And the reason to protect the animals and the flora and the fauna is so that we can survive. <laughs> it's, it's weirdly selfish. You know, yeah. that we need to totally. make sure the fish survive so that we have a viable food source. And we need to make sure that the sun can shine so that we can grow plants and that we have sustainable soils. And, and it's like, it's all very egocentric, ironically. Like we, it goes back to that paradox, right? Do I help you or do I help the group? It's like, do I help my species or do I help your species? The answer is yes. And, <laughs> and, and the, the irony is, is, is like, we're not saving the planet. We're saving ourselves. The existential crisis is the human race, not the planet Earth. Yeah, I just, well I said. just, anyway, yeah. Mm. Well said. So if you're talking to somebody as we we're kind of winding this down here and somebody wants some real kind of actionable advice about how to step up as a leader, you know, that very, you know, there's a, some of us that run companies and, and leading a company is something that, you know, is well traversed in a lot of your talks. And I know you talk universally about it as well, but for the ordinary person just leave, leading their lives in a way where they have the opportunity to be a leader, both within an organization or within their community or within their family. What are like the basic principles of leadership that we can start to practice, you know, right now, right away, as we finish this podcast, turn it off? What's something that everybody can do to start honing that, you know, what really is an essential skill? You know, the qualities of being a good leader look eerily close to just the qualities of being a good human being. <laughs> you know, um, somebody's a little, somebody's a little short with you, you know, in customer service, maybe they have a shitty boss, you know, and it's incredibly disarming instead of raising your voice, which we've all done. We've all got short tempered and we've all got frustrated. Like we, it, it happens. But for that one time that you have the self-awareness to say to the person, Hey, are you Okay. I, I, I can only imagine what it must be like over there. And, you know, let me know how I can help you. Like, I don't want to be that difficult customer who makes your job worse. You know, I just want to be that customer who can make your job better, you know? And, and it's remarkable how people respond when we're just nice to them. You know, say please and thank you. Look the barista in the eye and say, thank you. You know, how are you? And actually mean it. My friend, Lieutenant General George Flynn from the Marine Corps says his true test of leadership is if you ask somebody how they're doing and you actually care about the answer. Um, mm. And, uh, and, and like I said, listen, not to someone's words, try and listen for meaning. You know, I think again, not to, I'm, this is sort of like my beating a dead horse, uh, uh, podcast, but 
you know, we, we've prioritized ourselves to such a degree that we've actually forgotten the purpose of some of these things that we've adopted from the East. So, um, you know, like meditation is a great one, you know, like what is the purpose of meditation? And you hear people say, well, I, I, I do meditation so that I can, I can be present and I, I want to practice being present. Well, what's the point of being present? Well, you know, so I can be mindful. Okay, what's the point of being mindful? Like it's, it's not just for you, right? Like for anybody who's ever practiced meditation, right? You learn to focus on one thing, whether it's a sound or your breath or your mantra, you, you learn to focus on one thing and you learn to put all everything else, all the clutter out of your mind. And if you have a thought, you label it a thought and you put it aside and deal with it later. And that, that, that's what you're learning to do. And it's not for yourself. You're doing it, you're practicing in order to serve others. So that when someone's talking to you, when they're having a hard day, you have learned to listen to one thing and one thing only, which is what they're trying to say to you. And you're not thinking about all the other things you have to do. You label those thoughts and you put them out of your mind. And you are not present until someone else says you are. That at the end of the conversation, they say, thank you, I feel heard, or thank you for listening to me, or boy, I, I really appreciate you being there for me. Well, you've been practicing that for months for this one day, just so someone feels safe and someone feels seen and someone feels heard. That is the point of all of this stuff. And so, you know, the things that we can start to do um, to be better leaders is recognize that we are, we are in this thing called life with others, whether we like it or not. And this is my definition of faith. Faith is the understanding that we are um, on a team, even when we don't know who all the other players are. Mm -hmm. um, and you just have to trust that other people will be there for you, even if you don't know who they are, and some of them you do. And likewise for others, that you are on someone else's team. Everyone you interact with on a daily basis, and some you don't, you are on their team, even if they don't know you are. Um, and so give people faith in the human race. Give people faith that, that people are kind and good, you know, be that team member. So I think the first thing we can all do, the simplest thing that we can all do to, to be the leaders we wish we had is, is just consider the lives of others. That's so beautifully said. And it actually comes to mind that we might be robbing ourselves of the actual real idea behind this when we talk about karma in a way of which, oh, I do this thing so that the universe will reward me, which is not actually doing the thing for the sake of the thing itself. Right. It's not actually being kind just to be kind right. just for them without any desire for some karmic retribution oh i gave that parking spot you know what next time the universe is going to give me an even better parking spot right. that's nothing that's tit for tat that's just you that's, know trying to negotiate right that's a transaction right I, I think you're touching on something that's i think even bigger than i think it's a big theme here which is which is karma if you want to go with if we want to go down that route is like friendship, right? Like nobody keeps a notebook in their back pocket that keeps track of all the things that I've done for you and all the things you've done for me, <laughs> right? Well, I did seven things for you uh, this month. You've only done one for me. Like it's, it's time to like pay back, right? That's not what friendship is. Friendship isn't, is, is not equal that way. Friend, I may do a hundred things for you and you've done nothing for me. But the reason I call you friend and the reason I love you and care about you is because I know deep inside, I have this undying trust, this undying belief that the one time I need you, without a shadow of a doubt, I know you'll be there for me. And so the whole thing feels completely equitable. Mm -hmm. And that's karma, which is, I, it's not a score that I'm keeping. It's that I continue to give because I know the one time where it really matters in life that others will be there for me.
And it's that, it's that deal we make with society, this equitable deal. Um, and, and, and I'm the first to say that it's really hard because it is that paradox and we still have to protect ourselves. And sometimes we still have to be a little bit selfish and take a day off and rest and sharpen our ax and all the other metaphors and analogies that go along with it, because it is, it is a balance. And I think what it means to be a good human being is that we're protecting that balance, but we're also protecting it for others. Like to take somebody aside and say, I think, I think you need to take a day off. Like you, you need that, you know? Mm. Um, or I think you would enjoy, like, I, 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 th this is what is something I've learned. I, I can tell you the story where I learned it. It's um, a friend of mine was going through a really hard time in her life. Her marriage was on the rocks. Her career was going sideways. And like, it was, everything was falling apart around her. And she knows what I do for a living. And she called me and says, can you help me? And I said, absolutely. You're one of my best friends. Of course, I'll be there for you. And every week we got together in person for 90 minutes. And she told me all of the shit she was going through. And I would try and offer some counsel. And she'd feel great for like a couple of days. And then the next week, back we're back at square one. And I'd offer some counsel. And she'd feel great for a couple of days. And then back at square one. And this pattern was just repeating and repeating. And then I remembered my own work, which I'd completely forgotten, uh, that when I was reading, when I was writing Leaders Eat Last, one of the things that I did was I visited, I, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, which is like the most magical, purest thing. And anyone who's ever gone through a 12-step program knows, you know, most of us know the first step, you know, uh, admit you have a problem. But anybody who's gone through a 12-step program knows that if you master the first 11 steps and not the 12th, you're going to succumb to the disease more, more likely. But if you master the 12th step, you're more likely to beat the disease. The 12th step is to help another alcoholic. The 12th step is service. So I actually mm -hmm. help myself by helping someone else. And so I decided I had challenges and I had things that I was stressed out in my life. And so I was going to, I didn't tell her what I was doing. And I called her up and said, I need a favor. I've got a lot of stress in my life. And it was real. You can't fake this stuff. It's got to be real. I said, I actually need your help. Can we use some of our time together? you know, on our, on our weekly basis where I can confide in you. And of course she said, yes. And it turned out that every week we talked about my stuff exclusively. And over the course of a few months, she started to feel so much better and things started to fall into place in her own life. And I recognize it's because when we, because we have no objectivity about ourselves. And if we can actually help someone solve the problem that we're dealing with, like, how do I find love? Help somebody else find love. How do I find the job that I want? Help somebody else find the job that I want. How do I find happiness? Help somebody else find happiness. How do I get into shape? Help somebody else get into shape. Like if we can actually help others who are struggling with the things that we're struggling with, the irony is, is that's where we find, that's where the karma pays back. That's where the karma pays back. And I think this is, goes back to our natural disposition as social animals that, that, that our very survival depends Literally, it is dependent upon our ability to serve each other. Um, and so the first rule of leadership is take care of someone. Just mm -hmm. take care of one person who might need a little extra help, especially if they're struggling with something that you're also struggling with. No doubt. Yeah, beautifully said. The gift, the gift is immediately and instantly bilaterally received. The giver receives instantly upon the receipt of that gift, especially when there's gratitude present and acknowledgement, then it's, it's instantaneous. Yep. You know, there's no, you don't have to wait for your return gift. Like it, it happens at that moment at the same time. Yep. And that's the beauty of it.
beautiful man this was an amazing conversation where uh where should people go to check out more of your work and and all the many prolific things that you've offered the world you know, all the usual places you know <laughs> wherever you like to spend time online i hope i have a presence there <laughs> you definitely do so, you definitely uh do. you know books available but fine and not so fine bookstores everywhere <laughs> yeah beautiful man well thanks so much for this conversation brother really appreciate it thanks Aubrey. really yeah. thanks for helping me spread spread the message absolutely thanks everybody goodbye thanks for tuning into the episode i love you guys i'll see you next week